Hello, everybody. Welcome. It's Julie Bates with the podcast Training the Pointing Labrador, episode number 176. And this one is going to be about dog training things. It'll be a G update because I actually, we had some good stuff happen there. And then I'm going to uh, address some listener questions and I put them on the show notes in case any of them are of not of interest to you. So you don't, you know, you can know whether you really want to listen to these or not. So uh, that's going to be today. Uh, on a little piece of news first, um, still running for president for the APLA, so I hope that people uh, get out and vote, whatever your you know convictions are about that. But anybody that wants to be a member or is a member, you know, please, you should have had an email. And I don't know if you can still join or not to vote, but um, the voting's important for the organization because it's kind of deciding which way to go on a lot of things. So please do that. The other thing is my audio book is now out and available on, I think, uh, iTunes and uh, Amazon Audible. So for anybody that was interested in that, it is now available. Goodness, that was a lot of work and a lot of time and, and tremendous appreciation to David James, who does incredible work, both with videos and sound things, and he's he's really a talent. So he's the one that's really responsible for making all of those things work for me. So David, thank you so much. G update. Uh, did Upland this week with G. She's been off uh, off the Upland field for several weeks, as I've mentioned on here, and <laughs> so it's like, all right, let's do it. Let's put her out there and see what happens. So we put a few birds out. Now, just before I say what happened. All of these, as I've said before, for weeks now, we do blind retrieves almost every single day, never less than three. And she's just getting better and better. And finally, I really started to really constrict on the uh, expectations. You know, no looseness, no, well, I need momentum, none of that stuff. I'm starting to really require that she, you know, give me everything she's got and do these blinds really well and you know, kind of generally go exactly where she's pointed and stop and turn around on every whistle and and make a good effort to take the cast. Don't just wait for me to throw up an arm and then go wherever you thought you were gonna, wanted to go. Really drawing in on that, which I have found, and I know a lot of people probably just shake their heads at this, I have found when I do make a lot of those listen, respond, think about what I'm doing, demands on a dog at a high level, it reflects itself over in the upland field. And sure enough, so she uh, locked up on her birds like she's always done. And I was able to uh, use the word woe, even though I haven't been working hard on the woe stuff and keep her there. And she stayed the entire time. Now I had the problem is she really wanted to go on the gun. Even though I, she's steady on marks, She's like, well, I did for all those, you know, you've, we've done birds on her since she was eight weeks old. So she's like, no, 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 no. I just go out here. So that one won't be hard to fix. So I'm really happy. We'll see next week if I get the same kind of response from her. But it, she was completely steady, never moved, never, you know, wanted to go in, never did make any effort to go in and get at the bird. So, yes, success. Patience and playing a little bit of the outside game. Just like I had said in, in the mouth-ish uh, uh, podcast that I had, I don't tend to go right after it. I'm not going to be out there putting any pressure on her on that bird and, and using woe if it doesn't work. But I went back somewhere else, 
and got into her head so that conforming with what I was asking was a really big deal and I asked a lot of her and it transferred over pretty well. That's the approach that I found for most dogs works. Works extremely well. So yay for G. Things are really, really coming together nicely. Um, she's doing really nice work. And her sister is an even better blind runner than she is. It's uh, it, But I haven't got her all dialed in on the point yet. That's that. All right, first question. And I'm trying to make questions that are relevant to this time of year. I got a question from someone who had not a, a Labrador, but another breed, who wanted, they wanted to send me their dog because the dog was, um, I think, a year old and appeared to be very uh, shaken by the sound of guns. So upon the expert advice of a lot of different people, He'd been taking her to the uh, to the gun range and parking far away <laughs> and just letting her sit in the truck and hear guns going off as people were shooting at the gun range. And I said, is that working for you? <laughs> and he, he was like, well, no, she still, if she hears a gun, it seems to, to rattle her a little bit. And so he wanted to send her to me and have me condition her to the sound of gunfire since obviously there'd be gunfire here most days of the week. And um, so we had a little chat, and I asked him a few more questions about his dog. It was a house dog, lived in the house with the family, you know, had a wonderful life, had never been on birds. And, or if it was, it was one time. And never had been on birds, but he assured me that, um, that the dog really liked to hunt because they have a certain number of acres and the dog is out there uh, hunting grasshoppers and hunting Tweety birds and other little critters and she's always looking for something. And uh, so she, uh, he assured me that she liked to hunt. <laughs> and so I'm trying to decide, you know, don't be your normal brash, obnoxious self. You know, try to be a little bit, a little bit uh, diplomatic here. But I just still said, you know, if you had a schnauzer, it would probably hunt the grasshoppers. I know my wiener dog <coughs> would be out there hunting the grasshoppers and the Tweety Birds and any other thing you had out there. But she wouldn't be a, a good upland dog. And that doesn't really associate. So once again, I, was tr I tried to explain to him, what your dog is missing is complete context for that very loud, intimidating noise. And you can't condition them to a loud, inti intimidating noise and expect them to now suddenly be able to function in a way they've never had to function right next to it. There's just no context. And again, I know there's a dog out there that someone did that and it worked perfectly. But if you think about these guys, not like a dog widget. Okay, I have a hunting dog widget here and it needs to hunt and it needs to be okay with guns. So how do I make it okay with guns? That's sort of treating it like a stone that you just have to sort of hack and carve and away at to get the way you want. And I would suggest instead of looking at them that way, look at them like this little delicate thing uh, that's never been stressed very much at all other than maybe being on a leash or get off the couch or something and chases grasshoppers and thinks that's what life is. And now you have this big out of context boom thing. It's a little scary. You know, it would scare people if they had no idea what it was. So instead of just starting loud noises and bringing her slowly closer, 
I don't know what that would do, but instead of doing that, she has to know why that noise is a good thing. She has to have a reason that it's a good thing. That's why I've always said the pan banging and all that stuff. I mean, you can do that all you want, but it doesn't tell anybody, any dog, why. When they hear a loud noise, good stuff happens. So to take this dog, which was not an ardent retriever breed, um, take this dog, first has to know we're not hunting grasshoppers and we're not hunting bunnies. We are hunting feathered things that are hiding from you in here and not meadowlarks either, but literally game birds. We're, we're looking for those. And that is the coolest thing. These birds are the coolest things. And there's a lot of things you have to do to get that dog. You know, they, sometimes they have to catch it and carry it around and mangle it and chase it to go. But to have that light bulb click on so that they can you know, go, oh, I'm out here looking for these things. And suddenly being in a field, just that has some context for the dog. They've got to know why they're there. And not only why they're there, but they have to see the pleasure in it. They have to see, you know, the passion for what they were bred to do in it first. They just have to know why they're in a field. And because they'll chase a grasshopper around doesn't mean they're going to go be an upland hunter because most dogs are going to chase a grasshopper. Most cats are going to chase a grasshopper around. So it doesn't have anything to do with guns. First, you've got to get that in there so they know, oh, we're driving up. Oh, good. They're not afraid. There's not any loud noise. They just get to go find these things, chase them around, catch them, do whatever. Even, yes, the pointing guys, they have to believe that this is a really good thing. And then they have to believe it so much so that, one, at not yet, but at one point when that big loud noise goes off, that means they get to go run over there and, you know, if they're going to retrieve it, get it for you. They're going to go do that. And it has to, the desire to go after that bird that was shot has to be greater than their fear of the noise. So you can't bring a noise in until you have that great desire to go do that. And then when you do that, you can start off with a little 22 blank kind of a thing or 22 pistol, something that's not a big 12 gauge booming over their heads. And you, you create that association, not right over top of them, but out in front. You know, you go ahead and shoot a bird out in front of them, let them go get it where they're going, oh, when that thing goes off, I get to go get that. So that makes the noise that's not too intimidating meaningful to them. Now we have some context for the big noise. So then when they have that and that noise means, oh man, I'm going to get to go get that. Now you can, watching the response of the dog at a distance, begin to introduce a little bit bigger of a noise. But you can't do that until the desire to go get that bird and find that bird is greater than their concern. And you don't just, they're not a mindless idiot. You don't just condition them to noise and so then they won't mind. You have to have them believe that noise means something really good for them. And you can't have that until you have that high desire and boldness for looking for the birds. Okay, next thing, and I just got this one just real recently from a, a very experienced person in the dog world. And he had asked me to put out, whether in a podcast or on the Facebook page, which I'll see if we can do something like that, uh, just a, a little discussion on 
people that use electric collars on their dogs how to most effectively place the electric collar on the dog. And so I, that's nothing I ever think of, I guess, because I just place my own electric collars on the dogs all the time. But I guess there might be a need for people that haven't done it or are a little intimidated by it. And you can see people when they when they first start doing it and they just feel terrible because it's like, oh, this is a this is a torture thing that I'm putting on. It's not. But if you feel like that, then you put it on quick and just get away from it. Right. And then you're semi apologizing to the dog in your mind. I'm sorry, I don't want to do this to you like you're doing something terrible. And you're not. You know, if you save the life of your dog, probably really well worth it. You can call them off some, some chase or something that they really can't be on. Um, it is not a punishment tool, and it is not a thing for fixing your problems. It is a thing for enforcing um, the good behavior that you've taught. I always want to get that in, because if you're a, a punisher, don't listen to any stuff I have to say. But So just placement, repeat, I'm going to do this, for the placement of electric collar on a dog. First, when you get the collar... My suggestion is don't read all this stuff because they just have you using the collar for everything. But maybe their placement stuff is good. If you look at it, um, it has you have a selection of prongs on that thing. Usually, most of them they have these little short ones, which everybody oh that's cute. I don't want I don't want. And then they have longer ones. I would say virtually always, you know, unless you get a Weimaran or something that has almost no hair, uh, put the long prongs on. And there's a reason for that. It doesn't make it worse or more horrible. Yeah, let's get them. It's not that. Because the longer prongs give you a better chance of assuring consistent contact. And that's going to be important. So always, as soon as I ever get a new collar, which I don't, I have mine for like 10 years at a time, take off the little shorties, put on the long ones. Now, and make sure you screw those in tight. And here's the reason. So if and when you use your collar, it needs to be significant so that you don't have to use it very much. If you're collar conditioning and teaching them how to control the pressure and how to sit and hear and all that stuff with some pressure, all right, it needs to be absolutely consistent, like the leash would be or your healing stick would be or any of that. It needs to be consistent so that if you do a nick on there, the nick is is translated to the dog with the exact timing that you want. That's why the contact has to be continuous. You have to have those prongs connected to the dog's neck 100% of the time. When you put it on loose and it's kind of hanging there, particularly if you don't have the long prongs, but even then, if and it's going to rotate down so it's at the bottom of their neck, the, the box is at the bottom, and so gravity is pulling that away from their neck, and it might touch on one side. If it touches with one prong but not the other, you have no stimulation whatsoever. Or it's touching unless they're running, and when they take that step down and it falls away, there's no contact. And then when they take the next step at running, then it pushes back into their neck, so you have intermittent contact. Nothing is more confusing to a dog than that. So you want to make sure you have continuous contact. Now, how do you do that? If you looked at a dog's neck without any of the hair on it, and those of you with big, thick-coated dogs or the Goldens with all kinds of hair and stuff, okay, you have a lot of stuff to get through. But if you look at the neck, almost always the most narrow part of a dog's neck is right behind the skull. 
and then it widens as it goes down to their shoulders. So if you put it on on the lower part of their neck, the, the wider part of it, and you tighten it down so that there's continuous contact with those and, and firm continuous contact. All they have to do is run and it kind of bounces up to the less narrow, you know, the narrower part of it. Now we're back to intermittent or no contact again. So that is detrimental to what you're trying to do and it's detrimental to what you're communicating to the dog. So generally, whenever I put on a collar, I put the box on top of the neck. Now it's going to wind up, gravity is going to rotate it down, which tells you it's not so tight. It's not too tight. But I put it up on top of the neck so that gravity is assisting me with my continuous contact. I put it up right behind the skull on the narrowest part of the neck. So that way, if it's, it can't really slide down because it, the neck just widens. So you keep it where it will be maintain the same contact and it can't move around. It may rotate underneath. But so that now comes the third component of this thing. You don't want you obviously have to be able to breathe, right? So you, if there if you put it on and you notice they're having a little difficulty, okay, we need to we need to loosen it up a notch. Not very much. I like to put two of my fingers underneath the collar, tighten it down very firmly, not choking firmly, but very firmly, tighten it, and then pull my two fingers out. If the thing immediately starts moving when they move, that's way too loose. You want it to be firmly on their neck, not choking them at all, but that, but no looser than that. We don't choke. We want full opening of their breathing and their throat and their, all of that, and not one bit more than that, because then that thing can start sliding around and moving around, and then you get the intermittent contact. And that is, again, very detrimental to anything you're trying to accomplish with this. So you can, if you get a habit, again, there's, there's probably other ways. I just put those two fingers under there. I have the box on the top. The other thing I do, I'll tell you this, I slide the box when I get my new collar up next to the buckle, up next to that. That way, when I put the box on the top of the neck, the buckle's right there. I pull that around. I'm buckling it right there where I've got, so it's right. I don't have to buckle underneath their neck because I got the box on the top. The buckle and the box are right next to each other. Makes it much easier to just latch it down, put those two fingers in there, pull it firm, pull your fingers out, and it's real good. So I hope that's helpful, but that's, that's really important. You notice anybody that trains dogs a lot, they will all do it almost exactly the same way. Have it high on the neck, box on the top, and uh, firm, but so the dog can easily breathe and there's no constriction problems at all. So I hope that helps, but that's, that's a color application. Okay, last question, and it's going to be actually related to that because I had several questions with people with puppies. And uh, they wondered, you know, when uh, should I have my puppy wear uh, the electric collar not turned on? No electricity on little puppies, none, none, none. I don't care who tells you, none on the little puppies. So putting the, the electric collar when you're training a dog, we want them to look at it like part of the uniform, not like, oh, my God, it's the collar. Now I have to behave differently. 
If you've done that, then you've really made some mistakes with the collar. It should be that when they see the electric collar coming, it's, oh, good, we're going to go work or we're going to go hunt or whatever it is. It should be a very positive thing. So one of the ways that you develop that attitude in a dog is to make, when you're going to go take the walk with them, when you're going to go do some basic obedience or some training with them, they put on their working uniform. And not as little dogs, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but for our dogs, that means, one, we come out, sit down, I'm going to put the collar on correctly, like I just said. Even though we're not, we're not using any electricity on a little guy, we still put it on the way we always would. We don't want to change things when we start to actually use the collar. You want it to be like every other day has been. So you put the collar on them, not choking them at all, of course. You put the leash on them, and then you go do whatever you're going to do. So this becomes so, uh, so meaningful to them. It's like, oh, good. You know, here we go. We're going to go do things. We're going to go for the walk. It doesn't have anything to do with anything other than that. these things go on my neck, and then we go do good stuff. Now, when do you start doing that on a puppy? Not the little guys, right? It'd be like the Grinch's dog when they put the antlers on them and they just, whoop, just rearing comes up and the head goes down. You don't do that on a little dog just because they're just little. And it wouldn't, it's just too young to even compute or make much sense. But when they get big enough, whatever that is, and it's different, when they get big enough and strong enough that carrying this thing around their neck it would not really be a factor. So for some dogs, that would be four or five months. Okay, it, it, somewhere in there, you could start, and I just have dummy collars. And maybe they're old from a long time ago, but they're not functioning collars. And I just put that on, and then we get to work. At everything. Every, it's just absolute consistency. So when we're going to go take the walk, when we're going to go work on basic obedience, when we're going to work on simple things like holding the bumper or whatever, we got our uniform on. And so the collar goes on, and then we head out. I don't use it. Well, I use my collar on force fetch when I do the ear pinch thing. That's about it. But it becomes part of the uniform. As soon as they're strong enough and as soon as, uh, you know, they're, they're very uh, bold about what you're going to go do, then you just put that on every time you work them, and it's just a really happy thing. Then later on uh, when they're over six months and they start the formal training and you do your obedience and you got that thing on, when you evolve to the point where you can now start collar conditioning them, if you've put on correct enforcement pressure, teaching on your basic obedience, correct, you have to do it. I don't care if they're wonder dogs and they just do everything perfectly. When you condition them to enforcement pressure on sit and hear, when you switch over to the collar, it's not a collar thing. It's, it's not a collar thing. Because, I mean, it may be the first day or two, they're like, whoa, that's different. What is that? But the, if you have done your conditioning with mechanical pressure ahead of time correctly, this just falls into that. And they still don't go, oh, geez, it's the collar. And when you have a dog that just thinks you are magical and you do all this enforcement and all the stuff you put around their neck is their uniform, then you have a dog with a real good attitude that you're never, they don't get collar-wise. So that if you take the collar off, I had somebody tell me that this this year. They go, you know, with the collar on, this dog is fantastic. And without, he just did whatever he wanted. So that was the taught behavior. People teach that stuff. It's not the dog they taught. Without the collar, you're free. And with the collar, you got to do whatever I say. 
And the way to avoid that is to teach the attitude that this is my work in uniform and I am so happy because that means we're going to go do things. So as soon as they're four or five months, somewhere in there, if they're a little tiny, a little skinny neck, you know, be careful. But when they're, when they're bold enough and they're, you know, got a good-sized neck on them and they doesn't impede anything they're doing, then begin to create uh, their uniform so that later on when you do that stuff, they don't get collar-wise and it's just not a big deal. Okay, finally, I, one last thing that was a question. I think it was more of a rhetorical question than a real question, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. <laughs> I had uh, two people that came and getting a little hunting dog training advice from their dog, about their dog, and they were talking about going hunting. And it's a thing I've talked about a lot. It's a male thing, I swear. Uh, but they said, so that they, when you go hunting and they have a, a, like six or seven dogs all out in the field together, right? And I said, so are you hunting each a section of stuff? Or, yeah, no, they're all over. And so their question to me was, and they might be listening, is <clears throat> so when somebody, a bird comes up and somebody shoots it, um, wh which dog gets it? <laughs> which dog should get it? And I'm just sitting there going, I don't know how to answer that question. Um, because as many, many people know, including a lot of my own clients, I hear this stuff. They're all out there because they got these cool dogs. Some of them are well-trained and some are not. And the bird goes down and every dog in there goes, that is my bird. So what, in my opinion now, my podcast, remember, I can just say whatever. I This has a lot more to do with who has the biggest, baddest dog than it is with what sh what hunting uh, etiquette should be. So whichever dog is most determined, fastest, most elusive, usually is the one that gets it. And then if there's another one, they, sometimes they just tear them up, you know. So one of them will bring back the thigh and a leg and the other will bring back the rest of it. Um, so my answer to that question is don't ask me that question because <laughs> I'm not hunting with you. I'm just not going to do that. I've hunted with four or five dogs at one time, but that was also four or five people, and everybody had, like, their own part. And if your dog, you know, if your dog produced a bird and you shot it, then your dog got it. And so whoever was over a little bit from us, when that happened, my dog and I, that was none of their business, and they knew it. That's the only thing I know. If you spend a lot of time training and working on dogs and then suddenly um, teach them Okay, now it's just a free-for-all, and the most aggressive guy wins. I, I just, you know, I can't, there isn't an answer to that one because it's like, I don't know whichever one of you has the best dog. That's what it is. I think that's the answer to that. I don't know why people do that because it's really tough on the, the uh, birds when you got somebody fighting over you. And then the other thing is, is so now we're going to teach them uh, that you want to be aggressive, and that you don't have your own territory. You take anything you want if you can prevail. So if people like that, there's no stopping them. But it has nothing to do with good dog training or good hunting or good sportsmanship. It just has a lot more to do with, uh, I got a great dog and I'm hunting right now and I'm happy and I really don't care what's happening. And I don't, I can't weigh in on that because I'm just not one of those. So um, I think there should be etiquette. If you went hunting with me, my dog would not take your dog's bird. I would not let that happen or ever let them learn they even could. 
Um, but then that's just me, you know, and I don't have that much testosterone. So <laughs> anyway, that was kind of funny. I'm going to end on that one. Um, I hope everybody's doing well. Uh, crazy year, crazy stuff. Getting It's cold. It's seven degrees right now as I'm recording this outside. So things have gotten gotten cold. Anybody interested in listening to the audiobook? Like I said, it's finally there. People that were interested. Um, that's a, that was a monumental effort. And I hope that uh, you guys stay safe and happy. And G and I will be back. My point and steady G at least one week will be back soon.